Welcome, Pilates Elephants. It is so awesome to be with you. And I'm looking forward to getting down on the therapy couch and sharing everything that, well, not everything, because that'd be an infinitely long episode, but some of the more, some of the selected highlights of things that I was wrong about. And I'm looking forward to doing that with my friend, Daniel Abella. Daniel, welcome. Mate, Raf, thank you for for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. Oh, mutual. I'm, I'm keen to repent all my sins. <laughs> go forth in life. Uh, I don't think we need to repent. I think it just moving, you know, like living well is the best revenge, they say. And I think just, you know, changing your mind and doing better is the best, the best thing when you've been wrong. I think we've all, you know, we're all probably wrong about most of the things most of the time. And um, when we realize we're wrong about something, it's, if we change our mind, it's all good. 100%. Yeah, we're just doing the best we can with the information we have. So that's bound to change. I hope to be wrong in future. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. So, Dan, who the heck are you? Mm. Who am I? Um, in a professional sense, I am an EP based in Sydney, Australia, um, specializing in helping people with pain and injuries. And I'm also the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. And you've had the real OG, the, the bearded, wise legend that is Brendan Mowat on recently. And so highly recommend checking that podcast episode out. Um, and we at the Knowledge Exchange, we help clinicians in private practice apply a biopsychosocial approach to their healthcare. Um, so for myself with clients, I tend to see People who've tried a lot of the traditional methods of rehab and pain reduction, the corrective exercise and um, strengthening till the cows come home and stretching all the tight muscles and seeing a lot of professionals, but they still have pain and they're a bit unsure why um, and it's getting in the way of their life. And most recently I've been uh, helping a lot of dancers who are keen to dance for as long as they want, but they're a bit hesitant there's a few barriers and challenges to that and they don't feel um safe enough in that the pain might get worse after they dance or they're afraid to go into certain movements and ranges of motion so that's where i've been at recently uh, and for clinicians i tend to see clinicians who come across a lot of the the buzzwords you know the bps evidence-based practice person-centered care but that just like to know how to actually apply it and implement it in their particular context when there might be a lot of mixed messages from colleagues or where there might be some external pressures and there's a lot of the uncertainty in navigating pain and, and dealing with humans. So I help for both of them. I, I help coach and guide uh, looking at what's working and what isn't working and then giving them the skills to handle and better handle the challenges, whether that's for a, a client the next time they get a flare-up or the next time they get, a, a, they get an injury or a painful body part. Uh, and for the clinicians, it's that uncertainty when the client demands or wants an answer and they expect that fix. Mm -hmm. And um, for those of you out there wondering, an EP is an exercise physiologist. It's not an extended yeah. play. DJ. No. The, I used to be a DJ, but that's a different podcast for me. Part two. Um, and isn't it funny that the, the you know, I guess you know, 
paradoxically the you know when people have that sort of experience of learning about the biopsychosocial model and starting to try to practice in that way that encompasses the whole person and and let go of some of those things that were like previously kind of the bedrock of their worldview around around this stuff like posture and muscle balance and stretching and strengthening will solve all the world's ills all of a sudden there's a lot less certainty and like you said there's there's a lot of uncertainty and um I think what people often want is is oh, what's the new what's the new certain way? But actually, probably what the the best response is like, well, let's teach you how to get comfortable with uncertainty. Is probably the best we can do right now. That's it. It's oh, it's so human to want that quick fix. Even like we talk about it with clients, right, all the time. Mm-hmm. They just want their fitness goals now, like right here, yesterday. You know that they want um, the strength gains. I want the strength gains right now, like talking about it. Like it'd be amazing to just, you know, be stronger instantly. And there's a lot of um, misconceptions out there in the process. So if we can focus on the journey and the process and more long-term solutions, I think that would be so much better. Mm. So I'm talking about uncertainty and certainty. Um, It's, I think for both you and I, our professional development after we finished university was a has been a journey from a reasonably high level of certainty about how the world worked to an increasingly low level of certainty <laughs> about how the world works so we've got we've got less certain about things over the years and uh, there were many beliefs i think for each of us that we and at the time we wouldn't have called them beliefs i guess we would have just called them true facts about how the world works um, that at one time or another we've had reason to question and then discard. Uh, so yeah, let's 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 get on the therapy couch and let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about those. Do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? Yeah, I'll, I'll um, unleash all the vulnerability and my childhood traumas um, <laughs> first. So I think if if I was to categorize my understanding back then and and some of the claims I used to make and some of the approaches I had, I have certain uh, common themes. I think one of them definitely was posture. So I needed to balance exercises according to certain rules. Like there was the the classic cross syndrome, upper cross syndrome, lower cross syndrome meant that I've dissociated now. So I like, I don't exactly remember the, the claims I used to make, but I used to always see the graphs of, you know, tight, anterior muscles and weak posterior chain muscles. So therefore, for someone that came in, perhaps moving a certain way or looking a certain way from my observations, I would automatically just spot their postural dysfunctions and therefore provide postural rehab-based exercises. Um, So posture was definitely in and amongst the theme back back in the day. And upper cross syndrome is, uh, that's sort of like a, what, I don't know, what my parents would have ca- called like uh, tight pecs yep. <laughs> and weak rhomboids. And lower cross syndrome is 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 what my grandpa would have called tight hip flexors and weak glutes. Yes. <laughs> but, um, and I guess, uh, you know, I'm making fun of you there, but um, uh, I learned those things as, in a Pilates world, I learned those things as just like uh, a kyphotic lordotic 
posture type. And yeah, I've, you know, I've stretched all of those people and their pecs and their hip flexors and strengthened their glutes and their rhomboids and done all of those things. And so tell me, Dan, what was the, was there a moment? Like when did you first, when did it first, like when did you first have a dawning moment like, oh crap, this might not be true? It's a great question because reflecting back, it was more of a journey over time than an epiphany or like a particular moment um it included courses that challenged that idea so you can blame brennan and, and luke from the knowledge exchange at the time it was called the biomechanics education which um is definitely in that yeah, yeah. <laughs> violated my expectations and you know my demands as a client then but um the they, they showed evidence that basically debunked that entire uh, paradigm and that philosophy. Um, and I had, for some reason, I hadn't come across it before. And I was hmm. quite, at the time, frustrated that I was led this way through, um, I guess, the education that I had received, that no one had gone through the um, Lederman's paper, I think it was 2010, you could... I you know, Lederman, exactly. the fall of the postural structural biomechanical yeah, model. 2010, yeah. wasn't it? Or, or along those lines. And I graduated in 2014. And I took courses for this the whole time at, up until 2017. And it was I'm pretty sure the start of 2017 that I started coming across certain uh, bits of research that challenged and questioned the ideas of, of posture and doing things in a particularly neutral way. So mm. I think that that was the start, looking at some of the evidence and, and getting a backfire effect, like feeling frustrated seeing that and also um, reflecting on well, why was I taught that in the first place um, mm. and not putting a blame on any particular people or institutions. I think it's, it's like a collective sociocultural belief. There's, there were so many more back then like CPD courses related to fixing someone's posture and, and correcting imbalances and releasing tight structures and strengthening weak muscles. These like, it all came under the same banner and, and lens. Mm. So it sounds like that was a relatively easy belief for you to let go of when presented with new evidence. Because there's a there's a there's a spectrum, right? So like I think we probably each have beliefs that would easily change if presented with new evidence. Like if you know, if I said to you, like, what's the capital capital of Moldova? And you were like, Oh, it's, you know, Athens. And I was like, no, that's incorrect. You'd be like, oh, okay. You know, you know, you, you're not, you're not attached to that, that knowledge. But it, but then for each of us, we probably also have particular beliefs that we're very attached to that we'd rarely struggle. And if we get to, and I, you know, I don't want to talk about these issues, but if we started to talk about things like abortion or politics or religion, like, or sports, you know, there'd be certain beliefs that each of us would be like, ah, you know, that's not something I'm prepared to part with. And we could, you know, I could probably show you a bunch of studies on whatever your particular view on abortion is. I could probably show you a bunch of studies contradicting that and you'd go, oh, that's all bullshit. And if you could show me studies that contradicted my view, I'd go, oh, they're, they're bullshit studies and look at this, the, the methodological problems and, you know, <laughs> So we'd, we'd each, you know, like we, we each have beliefs that are easier and harder to let go of. And so like what's been one for you that's been really hard? Like for me, 
when I, when I, you know, when I sort of had my, I don't know, I guess my, the, the, the time when I kind of became aware of how to become an evidence-based practitioner, like the, you know, as like the, my paradigm shifted from you learn stuff from your teacher to you learn stuff by reading scientific papers. Um, <laughs> when I went, was going through that paradigm shift, which was, you know, a couple of years process, like the, one of the things that was really difficult for me was I was in this, I was in this Stuart McGill phase at that point. This was, it would have been around about 2010. And I'd read all of Stuart McGill's books and a lot of his research papers and whatever. And I was, everything was neutral spine. You know, I was like the, the guy on Instagram that's like goes to bed in neutral spine, puts on his underwear in neutral spine, picks up the orange juice in neutral spine. Like I was that guy, you know, but it wasn't a joke. There was no irony. And, and then I started, you know, reading other stuff, uh, and, and uh, like by Peter O'Sullivan and some, some stuff on flex lifting and, and and it was so weird that I was able to hold these two beliefs simultaneously, you know, that were diametrically opposed, like mutually exclusive. Like you know, you're only safe in neutral spine versus you're perfectly safe in any alignment, you know. And I I, I managed somehow to hold both of those beliefs simultaneously, and at some level, I did experience a, like a significant conflict about holding those. But at another level. On the surface, it was like I felt like I was able to somehow, I don't know how at this point, but I was able to rationalize that. And, and I think it was, you know, like they say, it's, I, I can't remember who this quote is from, but basically it's, it's impossible to convince a man of something when, you know, to, to explain something to a man when his uh, salary prepared, depends on him not understanding it, right? And so I was teaching neutral spine, you know, I was, I was the neutral spine guy, you know. I had I had like testimonials on my website, like, "Oh, Raf taught me neutral spine, isn't it awesome?" You know, my back pain's cured, you know. And so it was very hard for me to let go of that emotionally, you know, because I'd 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 sort of stood up in public so many times and said, "Oh, this is this is the one true way," you know, capital O, capital T, capital W, and yeah, I mean, I I remember very clearly the moment. When I think the balance tipped was when I went to Peter O'Sullivan's course, and he's and I I was a big fan of Peter O'Sullivan, but paradoxically I was also a big fan of Stuart McGill, you know. And I didn't at the surface I didn't see the conflict between those two things, you know. Uh, and I went along to Peter O'Sullivan's course, and he said, "Oh, we're going to, you know, this is going to be really challenging." Like, and I was like, "I don't think this is going to be challenging." I've read like every paper you've written in the last 10 years. I know what you're going to say on this course. I've watched all your YouTube clips. And then like 10 minutes into the course, he was like, I think it's totally safe to deadlift maximally with a flexed spine. I was like, no, no. And I was like, Luke in Return of the Jedi, no, you're not my father. You know, like, <laughs> and yeah, so I had like some real existential angst and all I could, like I basically didn't, didn't pay any attention for the rest of the course. I was just like, no, that, no, it's not so. It's not true. And um, yeah, so that was a really difficult for one for me to let go of. Has, mm. has there been one one for you that was like that really hit you, you know, below the belt? Mm. Yeah, it's it's uh it's it's fascinating reflecting back now where I actually had a look at my own workout routine and how I programmed my own training and the 
warm-ups would include certain activations and certain mobility drills. And the biggest one that, I guess, the one that was like the, the, we'll say the largest stone in the way of this journey was the mobility stuff. So I needed Mm -hmm. to have certain joint ranges of motion before I could adequately load. Or if I was to load it now, I would be quote unquote compensating and loading the incorrect structures or like, you know, not addressing the actual problem. So the paradigm was get the joints working right first yeah, and then start loading. So many, so many layers of in, incorrect assumptions within that paradigm, the root cause reasoning fallacy, the incorrect and correct, the, you know, anyway, dysfunction, like we, was that the Kelly, were you, were you going through a Kelly star at phase? Yeah, were you a supple leopard? There was a, <laughs> I was not a supple leopard. I was another animal that was, um, there was, f- um, some joint by joint, um, framework. So FMS was big then. Oh, the uh, functional was, movement screen. Yeah, That's where you, the, you do an overhead squat and you have to have your, foot, your heels flat on the floor and your head hands directly overhead with a broomstick. It's like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I can. The, all the, all the three letter, uh, abbreviations, the, the acronyms, the, there was FRC, there was DNS, PRI. So functional range conditioning, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. I shouldn't be remembering this, but I am, uh, postural restoration institute. These all, and funnily enough, you see these claims even today on Instagram with like breathing diaphragm, breathing wrong. And that's why your diaphragm's out of position and your rib cage is flared. And like, there's all these alignment paradigms. So I was stuck in quite a few of those rabbit holes. Um, reasons being they had courses, they marketed quite well. All the trainers in my gym, I was working in a commercial gym for a short period, had them. And I wanted to differentiate myself and have, you know, all of those courses combined so I could be superior and stand out from the crowd per se so how, how much how much money if you had to just guess how much money have you spent on courses learning things that turned out to be not true if you just had to like pull a number out of the air if i had to pull a number out of the air are we including the time when i traveled to canada to meet up with clinicians and any time you went and learned any paid money to learn something that turned out not to be true Oh, this is a dagger to the heart, the core. I would say overall, if we're looking at years spent down different rabbit holes that like reflecting now, I don't even use basically 99.9% of the time, like ever. um, mm, I'll go between the 30 to 40K, I'd say We'll go 40K if we look at all the traveling and all the investment and all the costs um, and all my own training programs that I did as a client to learn these techniques through mentors and supervisors and, and clinicians. Yeah. And, and how much of what you learned in your four-year degree do you think turned out to be not true? <laughs> I'd say in, in, in my day, uh, back in the MSK musculoskeletal rehab units, um, all of that was, I don't, I don't use any of it. I was going to, it's on my list of things I used to do that were wrong. So whatever that unit costs in, <laughs> in time and money back in the day, I'd say there were useful things overall in the, in the degree. So it wasn't all completely a waste of time, but within the MSK, there was still the postural cross syndromes, strengthen this, 
tighten this and release XYZ structure and then get them back into their meaningful activities. So Yeah, I graduated my master's in 2015 and I was still being taught transversus activation. You know, yeah. and at, at this stage there were already like five systematic reviews showing that it was no more useful than just general exercise. Unbelievable. I, I reckon out of that whole out of my whole bachelor's and master's, there were definitely useful things and I'm glad I did them, but I reckon in aggregate, there was one year of full-time useful content in my whole, you know, undergraduate and, and, and postgrad degree. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree around that. Crazy. Yeah. Most of what I learned, I would say was from working with clients in placement. I don't know about your experience, but the actual experiential learning and then getting some feedback on my approaches and my communication skills and my clinical frameworks and my clinical reasoning by far outweighed. So everything in my fourth year, like trumped everything I learned in the first three years, definitely by far. I think I learned a lot of in university about uh, study skills and research skills. You know, I learned all of like how to do Boolean searches on Google, Google Scholar. That was amazing. But I learned that literally in the first 20 minutes of my first degree because there was like this pre-recorded video by the librarian that was like, here's how you do a Boolean search. I was like, this is awesome. But I, little did I know that like that was the highlight of the next three years. You know, <laughs> it's all downhill from there. We've had peak university already. Um, but uh, yeah, so I learned some really good things. I met some great people. I, you know, I've got a lot of respect for some of my uh, professors. Um, but the by and large, the majority of it has not proved one useful or two actually like factually correct i think a lot of it um so all right so maybe you know let's let's go through maybe we could just do a quick quick um what do they call it like when you do like the 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 round in the 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 wheel of fortune game show where it's like the quick response yeah quick fire kind of yeah quick fire round okay so we'll just volley back and forth and we'll just bounce like okay here's something i was wrong about here's something you were wrong about all right, yeah. you ready? Yeah, let's go. All right. Transversus abdominis. Mm. So foam rolling, I needed to use it to release tight muscles and trigger points. <laughs> oh, of course you did. Well, I I did trigger points, obviously. Um, and I also learned how to do this kind of soft tissue spinal manipulation technique where I could uh, – I became so expert that I could palpate movement of the transverse processes and even the SI joint. Wow. Yeah, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, and others listening to this, uh, there's just a massive slathering of irony in every single word that we're saying at this point. So just you know, just so you're on the same page. (laughs) Just visualize quotation marks in everything. Um, The biggest one that also I felt a strong sense of um, backfire was strengthening weak muscles would fix someone's pain. Mm, 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 mm. And and it's generally the little muscles that were weak wasn't it? Yeah, never the big muscles. They <laughs> were never, too strong. It was never your quads or your TFL need strengthening, <laughs> you know, your rectus abdominis. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it was always like your teres minor or your external obliques. My or, pecs were like the strongest muscle apparently. Right, and pec minor especially. Yes. And not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy. Um, you know, I used to do posture analysis. We had an actual plumb line. Um and, you know, I could just look at you for 15 seconds and tell you about what your left TFL was doing compared to your right posterior gluteus medius. Um, and, I, yeah, that was pretty obvious to me. Yeah, all the jargon. All, yeah. I had uh, glutes were a major muscle group. So every client with knee pain 
glute strengthening. Um, well, you know prehab, what? I'm rehab. Gonna, I'm going to call you on that one because actually that there is that is still best practice for patellofemoral knee pain is strengthen the hip and the knees starting with the hip. Okay, there you go. And it's it's not the same thing as saying that weak glutes cause knee pain. But oh, it, yeah, yes. That does seem to be more effective than doing other things. So, yeah, current, current guideline-based best practice for patella from a new pain. Yeah. Mm. So you have to throw that one out. So you were wrong about being wrong. <laughs> You're meta, doubly wrong. <laughs> meta wrong time. Even more shame. Shame about the shame. <laughs> um, I, was, I used to do manual muscle testing. So I could lie on a table and do a Thomas test and tell you, oh, your left TFL is a little bit short and your right psoas is a little bit tight and your, you know, left lower trapezius is, uh, you know, a four out of five or whatever strength. Yeah, so I used to be able to do all that. I mean, I still can do all that. Unfortunately, it's not a real thing, but <laughs> like, I'm really good at it. <laughs> so good at all the I feel like the I feel like the guy that's really good at, I don't know, stamping dvds or something it's like it's a useless skill it's like it's not a thing anymore you know yeah it used to be very valued back in the day yeah, yeah. we used to do that yeah um the more recent one if someone had pain i had to ask them for a vas so a score out of 10 mm. and my goal was to reduce it at the start before any form of meaningful loading or getting them back to their activities. Right, never put load on dysfunction. No, no. <laughs> we all know that. Yeah. Air quotes, air quotes, everybody. Um, all right, so I uh, I knew that, uh, you know, in a similar way, that before you could load something, you had to sort of isolate and dissociate limbs, right? So if, you know, if you had low back pain or hip pain or whatever, Obviously, step number one is lie on your back. Don't move your torso at all. Move your leg out like five centimeters out to the right, and then move it five centimeters back to the left and keep your ASIS perfectly, utterly, totally, completely in all other ways level. Maybe put a blood pressure cuff underneath your low back to make sure everything's staying perfectly, 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 perfectly still. Yeah, yeah. that was so awesome. That was called the LPS back in my day. I don't know about your day. The lumbopelvic yeah. stability yeah. Assessments. Uh, we had yeah. five yeah. levels and we huh. were assessed on our ability to palpate the multivitus and the transverse abdominis and co coach a client through all the five stages and tell them when they're, you know, moving or activating the wrong muscles. So, and I, I read, uh, so I never learned like that particular framework, but I, I am familiar with all of the, the theory there. Like I read Hodges, Richardson and Hyde's book. Um, uh, lumbar pelvic stability or whatever it was called. And then I read all of their research papers about multifidus activation and all of that stuff. And so, yeah, like first you have them, you know, supine or sideline and you put your fingertips on their left L45 multifidus and you ask them to swell it out and do fingertips and, oh my goodness. Then you ask them to press their L4 spinous process into your fingertip, but not their L3 spinous process. And did we, did you do all of that? I didn't go into that detail. So obviously Ooh, your yeah. skills you were you of were, a higher yeah. value and yes. you were a supreme clinician because you have a master's degree, right? So yeah, well, technically were, that's above an undergrad. I'm just a lowly you right. know, yeah, undergrad just, degree. Yeah. Okay. Well, grasshopper, you know, one day yeah. you will, you'll understand the mysteries. Of the magic hands. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Uh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, 
uh, shoot one, you give you one more volley, and then we'll move on to the next round. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. All right. Um, so for me, a more recent one, um, and I've been reading into this recently, is I needed to change someone's beliefs first, and this is a big one because um, I'm sure we could discuss it, before they can, you know, reach their functional meaningful goals. Uh-huh. And the, the belief was directly going to fix their pain. All right. So this is great because this is exactly where I was hoping ah. to take it next, which is like, okay, so what we've talked about, all of the kind of dinosaur beliefs. Now, if you're out there listening to this and you're still doing some of these things, I mean no disrespect. Like, honestly, I've been there. <laughs> I totally have been there. So yeah. when I say dinosaur, I just mean like in in my personal chronology and your personal chronology, Dan, that like these were the things that we kind of raised up on as kids when we were you know, doing our degree and, and initial training or whatever. And these were the kind of the first things that we learned. We're like, oh, shit, that's not true. <laughs> yeah. And, and to be fair, like they served the purpose at the time. I right. think that's important to note. Like there was a, a reason for us doing them at the time. We were just doing, you know, the best we could at the time. Right. And I want, I want to take just a, like a moment, a word from our sponsor here, which is just, well, maybe just not really a word from our sponsor, but like a, a, a moment to just acknowledge that like, you know, the, the evidence, you know, pretty clearly shows that anything works as good as anything else when it comes to stuff like low back pain, shoulder pain, neck pain, whatever. Now, there are, you know, one or two situations where there's something particular that works a little bit better than other things, like maybe hip strengthening for patellofemoral pain. Um, but basically anything works as good as anything else, right? So if you're out there teaching people to use their multifidus and doing their posture analysis, like that works just as good as any freaking other thing right there's nothing wrong with it there's nothing wrong with it at all in terms of like can can it help people yeah sure can help people um but almost certainly not for the reasons that we that you and i used to think and that probably most people think that it helps people so if you're out there training you know right now listening to this whilst you're teaching a client to activate their multifidus or stretch their tfl because it's overactive or whatever like we love you and we you know, we don't, we don't care. You know, we don't judge you. <laughs> We've been there. Um, this is, this is, uh, this is, this is a safe space. All right. So where, so where we, where I want to take this now is like, this was what I would call like a second generation mistaken belief, right? So I was like, okay, we first, when we were trained up as kids, we we're like, it's all about the posture and it's all about the multifidus and it's all about the upper cross and lower cross syndrome. And then we we're like, no, it's not true. And then I don't know about you, but this is me. It's like, oh, it's all about belief change. And it's all about motivational interviewing. And it's all about pain science. And it's, you know, <laughs> it's all about you don't even ever need to touch the client or ever get them moving. It's just educate them and they will, you know, reach enlightenment and <laughs> their pain will disappear. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, my one was the, the pain science was an intervention by itself yeah. and just the, yeah. and even BPS, that was a thing that I would do. I'm going to do someone. BPS on you. Yeah. I'm going to do yeah. biopsychosocial on you. Yeah. 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 So uh, I used to, um, yeah, misconstrue my own idea of like uh, BPS and shout out to uh, Ben Cormack's recent paper uh, on the more of the inactive approach and where the BPS approach can be more of a almost biomedical in disguise. So I used to do that. I used to find out everything, like trichotomize the BPS, separate then, the person into- Diagnose and then dictate what they needed to do to solve it. 
Yeah. So yeah. instead of telling them to fix their multifidus, you're telling them to fix their sleep, but basically the same sign. Yes. You stole my example. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> so using beliefs in that, it was the same approach where if, if, if I just change the beliefs, everything else will be fine and fixed. Right. Because if you change your beliefs, your pain will disappear. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, we're, yeah so I had that one as well, that pain science was an intervention <laughs> and that education was like, yeah, all you need to do is educate people and help them change their beliefs and then you're golden, you know. And uh, have there been any, uh, like, uh, is that kind of like the totality of that for you? Like that, I, got, I guess what I would think of as second generation, like what came after for me, the neutral spine and multifidus mm-hmm. is like, yeah, pain science as an intervention, mm-hmm. biopsychosocial as a trichotomy. I like mm-hmm. what you said there. Yes. <laughs> um, um, as sort of like, you know, telling people that they must, you know, sleep, better or you know, wagging your finger at people yeah, just <laughs> stop being wrong, you know, putting x's and, and ticks next to people sleeping you yes. know <laughs> yeah yeah totally and and um prescribing certain um things to do for them to sleep better and like having that as an intervention like as like i'm a sleep specialist in the first yeah. place yeah yeah I, i'd say yeah overall because we covered the movement one so the main one is needing to move well or functionally yeah. first yeah. before loading. So I would have yeah. that disgust and that like looking at someone's squat and it, it's like, it just doesn't look right. And right. I need it to be looking right first mm. because that's, otherwise it's uncomfortable for me to load them. So that, that would, I'd say that would be the end of the first gen in my. Yeah. All right. What a yeah. great summary. All right. So there's a really, there's a synthesis really. The first gen uh, for both of us was really based around the notion of m- m- there's such a thing as kind of movement quality that can be objectively measured. And if it's, you know, incorrect or, you know, abnormal in some way or quote dysfunctional in some way, then, you know, there's your, there's your basic problem. And when you find the root cause of that, you can trace it down from the shoulder to the lower lumbar, to the SI joint, to the opposite knee, to the opposite ankle, to the opposite big toe, and bam, there's your issue, right? And when you fix that big toe, bada bing, bada boom, shoulder pain gone right? Because you've yeah. solved the root cause and it spirals up through the spiral line. and Like a mechanic, the, like a technician, right, like right. so precise, like engineers right. would love this shit. Like. <laughs> right, right. And so that, and, and whether you do that by anatomy trains or multifidus activation or functional movement screen or core strengthening or postural readjustment or muscle stretching and strengthening or activation or movement retraining or trigger point release or blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Insert the other 99 things that we used to believe, neutral spine, you know, let's not, you know. Mobility, (laughs) yeah, diaphragm, ribcage stuff. Quite correct breathing, yeah, yeah. All of the scapular stability. Yes. (laughs) The list is endless. (laughs) Um, So that was kind of basically, yeah, movement quality was like, that was the Pleistocene era, Okay. And then I don't know any of my, the, I'm probably going backwards in time, but, but the Mesozoic, whatever the next one was after that. <laughs> sorry, if, sorry if you're an archaeologist or paleontologist listening to this. <laughs> Please correct me. But, you know, whatever the next era was, um, there, you know, or let's say that was the dinosaur era. Then we come to the mammal era. Okay. Now the mammal era, and that was like pain science and re-education and belief change and biopsychosocial is an intervention. And it's like, and that's like 
giving people, instead of giving people rules about how their multifidus was supposed to activate, we start giving them rules about what they should believe and how they should sleep. <laughs> yes. And, and we're laughing at it now, but like at the time, it was very serious. It was yeah. very serious. Legit. Yeah. And um, on that, like stress was a cause of someone's pain. And so we, you know, tell someone who had lots of things going on in their life to just stop stressing and then ex expect that to help in the first place. <laughs> and, and secondly, like to directly have a causal relationship to, to their pain. It's like, Oh, so yeah, I think i um, still stuck in that reducing the person's complex experience into one thing. We just changed just from change the, thing, the yeah. biomechanical thing, the body as machine paradigm in the dinosaur era and in the mammal area, era it was more of the i'd say yeah belief change maybe communication skills is all we need maybe we go into like the counseling kind of skills and that's the fix i did sessions where like literally the whole session was just talking like an hour and just talking you know no movement at all i'm like oh my god that... <laughs> yeah and I can see sometimes, like, in those cases, just a phone call or an email would suffice. But, yeah, I, I think I, I used to get stuck in, like, is this conversation actually going to lead to any meaningful change for you? Or are you just kind of – or am I just stuck in a debate because I want to prove this person wrong and fix their beliefs? And it was normally that where actually right. I just wanted to prove myself right because of all the pain science that I've read and I was, you know – enlightened and this if only this person knew what i knew they would have their pain reduced done right fixed. yeah the reformed smoker scenario <laughs> yeah. i used to believe believe biomedical and now i know now i know the truth with a capital t and once yeah. you understand the truth you will be saved that's it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, um yeah, you mentioned motivational interviewing was in your one. I'm curious now, what else was in your mammal era? Well, I don't know if that's the mammal era because mm. I think motivational interviewing kind of persisted into the modern era for me. It's only very recently that I let go of that. But I would say that um, the thing, the, the one thing that I've noticed is that each era for me, I've held the beliefs less strongly and I've been less attached to them, you know, as each successive generation of incorrect beliefs I've had has been easier to let go of, you know. Um, and so I think like, you know, the, the next generation for me after that sort of the, the, the re-education, you know, pain science phase. Now, pain science is a real thing, just like biomechanics is a real thing, you know, um, but it's not the cause of people's pain and it's not the solution to people's pain and i think that you know current science really says that there is no like what's the cause of someone's pain is really the wrong question and there is no cause you know pain is an emergent property you know that is multifactorial and can never be reduced to a single factor or even like two or three factors like it's it's way more complex than you can't isolate, you know, particular things 99.9% of the time. So I think that was really the the third generation for me. Like the first generation, like you said, was really, it was like the movement quality kind of paradigm, you know, represented by whatever version of that you were trained in. 
And then the second version, I think, was the pain science sort of paradigm. It's all in your head, right? <laughs> movement quality doesn't matter at all. In fact, movement doesn't even matter at all. Just think and your pain will be gone, you know? Um, and then the, the, I think for me, the modern era has been an acknowledgement that it's like been a swinging, you know, like, so I think in the, in the first era, you know, I think I, I, I was very, very biomechanical. In the second era, I was like, no, that's all wrong. Don't be biomechanical. That's all bullshit. And I was like, pain science, beliefs, you know, emotions, stress, sleep, everything was just like psychosocial, right? So I was just, I was just a PS, you know, practitioner. <laughs> uh, the <post> script era. <laughs> And so I think, you know, I, along with, you know, probably a lot of other people went running from one side of the boat to the other side of the boat. And I, I like to think that I've now found a place more in the middle of the boat where I, I see the bio and the psycho and the social as all being integral and you can't separate them out and going, okay, you've got, you know, stress is causing your pain or you've got incorrect biomechanics causing your pain. But, you know, I really love that, that cup metaphor and I, I, do you know who, where that came from? Was that Adrian Lowe or Greg Lehman or do you know yeah, where that came one from? One of them. I heard it from Greg first, mm. but he could have got it from somewhere else. I th he mentioned in his course, but I, I forgot the source. Yeah. And, and I really love that metaphor because, you know, obviously it's not an accurate explanation of human physiology, but it, I think it really explains, it's a useful way of thinking about pain. And basically what it says is, dear listener, you've got to, you know, if we think of how pain works, Think of a cup, and the cup is the cup of resilience, and it represents your ability to tolerate stress. And a stress in physiology is anything that threatens your homeostasis. And your homeostasis is your dynamic balance in your body. Like your body likes to be a certain temperature, a certain level of acidity, a certain level of blood sugar, a certain amount of oxygen, a certain amount of blah, 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 all of these things in your body. Your body likes to have very particular kind of, um, you know, level of all of these things and that is your homeostasis right so you've got all of your organ systems basically their purpose is to keep your body temperature acidity blood sugar etc at the right level so you can live and then procreate and have grandkids and then that that's what it's all for and so anything that threatens your homeostasis is a stressor and so you know being in a hot environment you know if you go and it's in, in a really hot day and it's it's a your body likes to be like 37.5 degrees celsius and so if you go into a, like a 40 degree day well that's a stressor because it's trying to raise your body temperature and your body temperature doesn't your body doesn't want to be hotter so you have a stress response you release stress hormones from your adrenal cortex and those are cortisol and adrenaline and noradrenaline, all of those things. And you, those stress hormones trigger a response in your body, which is sweating and dilation of your peripheral blood vessels and increase in breath rate and blah, blah, blah. Lots of different stuff happens, okay, as a response to that stress or to maintain your homeostasis, right? And that's the, but then if you go into a cold environment, that's also a stressor of a different kind. It's like wants to lower your body temperature. So you have a stress response. You release stress hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline from your adrenal cortex, and they trigger a different response, you know, shivering, you know, constriction of peripheral blood vessels, all of that stuff, right? And then if you get home from work one day and there's like a, this like final disconnection notice for your telephone service because you haven't paid the bill, well, you get a stress response, right? You re release stress hormones from your adrenal cortex and it triggers fight or flight and blood gets pumped out from your from your digestive tract and to your muscles and all of that 
do peoples dilate and all of that stuff, right? And then if you have a fight with your significant other, stress response. If your boss yells at you at work, stress response. If you're feeling anxious about your back pain, stress response. Like all of, you know, and, and all of these things draw on the same um, reservoir of capacity to respond, right? So if, if you're in a hot room and you receive that last final notice and your boss yells at you and you're having a fight with your significant other and you didn't sleep very well and your kids are sick and you lost your job and, 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 well, it, you know, wears you down, right? And we all know this, this, you're probably out there rolling your eyes going, yeah, fucking duh, tell me something <laughs> that's not bleeding the obvious, right? But the point is all of these things draw on the same physiological reservoir of capacity, right? And so if you think of that cup of resilience as representing your your ability to tolerate and buffer stress, you know, based on this stress response, well, we can pour stressors into the cup. So we can pour in a bit of like, I don't know, like just anxiety, right? We can pour in a bit of low sleep. We can pour in a bit of emotional stress. We can pour in a bit of depression. We can pour in a bit of, uh, you know, uh, negative pain beliefs. We can pour in a bit of low physical fitness. We can pour in a bit of uh, tissue status, a bit of inflammation somewhere in your spine or your shoulder or your whatever. Like we can pour in a whole bunch of stuff, right? We just keep pouring stuff in. And if we pour at some point, we pour so much stuff in that the cup overflows, well, the overflow in this metaphor can be pain, right? And so it's not a useful question to say, oh, which one of those things that we poured in caused the pain? It's like, well, no, it was none of them. Like it was all of them. It was, it was the, it was the aggregate, you know, so was it the sleep or was it the stress or was it the inflammation in your shoulder or was it the low physical activity? Well, no, you could have had that pain without the sleep problem. If you just poured in enough of the other things, it would have still got pain, right? And even if you don't fix your sleep problem, you can still get rid of the pain potentially if you stop pouring in so much of those other things, right? Or if you get yourself a bigger cup, Right. And you get a bigger cup by building your resilience and like psychologically and physically. Right. So I love that metaphor because it really, I think, powerfully illustrates that like what caused the pain is really the wrong question. And there's no, there's no meaningful answer to that question most of the time. It's just, yeah. it's just a will o' the wisp. And, and that's definitely perhaps in that, the, what shall we call this third? paradigm or yeah. shifting to yeah. what we're currently uh, basing things off. It's, it's that uh, we can't separate all those components. And I used to have maybe back in the mammal era, the, the pie sections where, you know, something was 30% bio, 40% psychological, and then right. 30% they just need more friends and stop being so isolated. So I think that, that separation, that need to find a specific answer I think comes from yeah. our training and it also yeah. comes from a lot of societal cultural expectations we we get the clients that come in they're like why am I in pain there's an yeah. assumption within that question that there's a reason yes and it's the process is actually diving into that and unpacking it and, and reflecting on their own experience to see maybe we can shift and change reframe that question like what, what might be influencing your pain right now what's going right. on for you let's let's discuss let's talk about it and that, that complexity is where I'm currently, I guess, at, which will probably be wrong in the next generation, but that's how I'm basing and my understanding of the the experience of pain. Yeah. And I would I I mean, I guess maybe it's a it's a distinction without a difference, but I would say I think there is a reason for pain, right? But I just think it's so unbelievably complex 
that in order to understand that, we'd have to know the position of every particle in the universe. Uh, and so basically, you know, f- for all practical purposes, it's a meaningless concept. But I think like an omniscient, you know, supercomputer in theory, you know, could determine that reason, right? If given infinite time and infinite computing power, you know, it could say, oh, yes, it's because this atom in the, you know, Antares sector, you know, moved, you know, <laughs> and, and that's triggered this whole imbalance in the universe, which has resulted in your pain, okay? But it's like, it's so unbelievably complex that in reality, there's no possible way we can identify any kind of real meaningful causality in most cases, right? Yep. And, and to pursue that is normally what people have tried anyway, right? They've come in, they're trying to find that source. They're trying to find that fix. And so we can use that at, like to our advantage and be like, well, what's it been like trying? And that's kind of the way that I tend to do. One of the questions for later on is what do you do now? That's how I've reframed and evolved that approach to well, let's reflect back on your experiences and how's that working out for you? Mm-hmm. It's funny, isn't it? That makes me think about, um, you know, what sometimes I've heard people say is like, oh, my XYZ practitioner is so awesome. You know, my physio, osteo, chiro, Pilates instructor, EP, whoever, right? So awesome. Been seeing them for years for my back. I'm like, all right, how long have you had your back pain? Oh, five years. See them every time it's bad. I'm like, oh. And over those five years, has your back pain got better, worse, or about the same? Oh, it's about the same. You know? Yeah. yeah. That's it. It's like, <laughs> hang on, there's a discrepancy here. And I'm noticing things, but are you noticing things? We can like, so that, this is like the, the framework would be, well, I, I get you. Like, I'm sure they're a great person and they've, Given you that, that sh- it seems like it's a short-term effect. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. How's it in the long term? Or what's the plan to, like, is there a plan for the long term? Who knows? And then they, they can have that realisation themselves. So I'd say this third paradigm has been the buzzword of experiential learning, movement experiments. I think a bridge in between that was the motivational interviewing, which I have a different mm-hmm. perspective on. Nowadays, I'm curious to dive into your perspective on it. Yeah. All right. So, all right. Well, I, I th- yeah. So I said that uh, motivational interviewing kind of was a, a holdover from the kind of the mammal era, mammalian era for me that uh, has that persisted into what I think of as the modern era. But I let it go quite recently. Um, and I let it go quite easily and with really just a sense of curiosity and interest rather than any, any kind of negative emotion. Because, you know, I teach this the diploma of clinical Pilates and it's a one year program. It goes, um, we have three modules and each module run, you know, so we have intakes like three times a year and people can start in any of the three modules and it just kind of rolls through. Um, and each January we have the module, which is the biopsychosocial uh, approach to clinical Pilates. So we teach all of the, um, so I guess the non, the, the things that are not specific to any body part or anatomy or whatever, anything to do with contextual effects, you know, um, behavior change, sleep, you know, the, 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 the basic pain neurobiology, like all of these, you know, um, progressive overload, all of the things that it's probably useful for you to know as kind of a background, you know, foundation to be an effective practitioner that don't involve knowing how the elbow works or how the, 
shoulder works or anything like that. And we do that in the other modules. We do the anatomy stuff in the other modules. And so every year when we deliver this, well, every, every lecture, basically, I deliver a lecture once a week. We do 43 weeks a year. We're lecturing. Um, and so every week I deliver a 90 minute lecture on one topic. And one of the topics is behavior change because the, you know, the whole model that we have in this, uh, in this whole program is, is basically the three-part model I've developed called the whole person framework, which is one, build a therapeutic alliance, two, build physical capacity, and three, build psychological resilience, right? And like step number one in all of that is build a therapeutic alliance, right? It's like, do not pass go, do not collect $200. And, and my current view is that is very important, right? The literature seems to support that therapeutic alliance, the strength of a therapeutic alliance, you know, is a fairly strong predictor of outcomes for, for clients, right? So, which kind of makes sense. Like, well, if you don't, the therapeutic alliance is where you and the client like and trust each other and have sh- agree on shared goals and strategies, right? So, well, if you don't like and trust each other or agree on shared goals and strategies, like, I, I can't imagine it's going to be very effective <laughs> working together. <laughs> so, it kind of makes sense, you know. Um, but so I used to, you know, sort of lump that in with uh, behavior change. And we still do in the sense that we now do, we focus a lot on goal setting and, you know, eliciting uh, functional goals from the client and what's important to them and meaningful to them and using some evidence-based goal setting strategies to, you know, set goals, set, set achievable and meaningful goals for the client. But we used, that's where we used to use motivational interviewing, which was what I learned in uni and I'm sure you did too, which was this like semi-miraculous psychological intervention to help people get unstuck from ambivalence around behavior change. And I even, I did, I, you know, I was fascinated by motivational interviewing. It had pretty good literature supporting things like smoking cessation and drug and alcohol counseling and stuff. And there was some literature in like physical activity um, and stuff, but most of the literature was in kind of drug and alcohol and serious like substance abuse and stuff like that, obesity and, and things. And, um, I even went over to, um, New Mexico and studied like directly from the people who developed motivational interviewing and, and, you know, it was like drunk the Kool-Aid, you know, and, and this was, was at the university of New Mexico. Like this was science-based stuff. This wasn't so like a fringe thing. Um, and so anyway, so we were teaching this and every week when I deliver the lecture, I always go onto Google Scholar for a few hours and and do a literature search and go, you know, systematic reviews since last year on this topic, you know, anything new, right? Because I don't want to be teaching something that's not the current best practice. And so much to my shock and, you know, surprise, this year in January or something when I was researching behavioral, um, behavioral change, motivational interviewing, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, no, there's another routine Literature search, it's not going to turn up anything new since 2021. It was like, bam, systematic review and meta-analysis. Motivational interviewing, there's not good evidence that it works in physical activity interventions for behavior change. And I was like, huh. <laughs> so all of a sudden, this whole lecture that I'd written that I was about to deliver in like 24 hours, was like, hey, here's how you do motivational interviewing. It's like, no, that's not what we're going to lecture this year. We're going to do something else. So, um, yeah, so that that was um, – I'd been teaching motivational interviewing for like four or five years and been a big fan of it. And, I, you know, I mean, I think it's very amazing and it has, as far as I'm aware, reasonable 
reasonably strong support in other areas apart from physical activity. But yeah, the physical activity literature wasn't that convincing apparently. So yeah, so that was, that was only like, what are we now in November? That was 10 months ago for me. Yeah, wow. That's so cool. It's, um, and how are the results that you saw when using motivation interviewing at the time? Like the, what did you find most beneficial? Cause there's certain aspects that I just call now communication skills and like reflective listening in general to show that yes. you're listening. Yes. I don't use the change talk kind of, you know, yes. highlight. This is a C and this is a, what's the other one? The, I completely thought the other terms, but you, you know, annotate their, their transcript almost like you're doing yes. qualitative research yes. in front of them. Yes. So I, I don't do that, but there's certain like skill sets within that that I'm sure. Yes. So I think those OZ skills, you know, the, yeah. um, uh, 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 open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries, I think they're just useful foundational skills for good quality listening. Um, and I don't, so I don't teach them as behavior change techniques, but just like, here's how to listen someone to someone so they feel heard. Yeah, I use it exactly the same. So it's um like there's this I like the spirit of the, the approach. So it's evoking the person's own reasons. Um and it can be helpful in a framework and and almost like an attitude towards interventions and it can help see that oh I don't need to be the fixer authoritarian expert. If they want that, I can be, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with wanting that from their point of view. But instead, it allows us some of the skills and the tools to feel a bit more confident in collaborating instead of directly prescribing like you're a you know, dictator that knows all the answers, which is generally what we were taught. So I see it as more of a skills-based approach rather than actually changing a behavior. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the literature at the moment um, – recommends person-centered care, which involves care that is based, you know, um, sensitive to the client's beliefs, expectations, preferences, goals, etc. So, you know, it definitely, you know, the, the best practice is to evoke or elicit those things from the client. And that's certainly the spirit and intention of motivational interviewing. However, I think I agree with you that basically the evidence stops short of saying that it's a useful te- and important technique for changing behavior. I think it's like, yes, it's important to build an alliance with the client and, and a really important part of that is listening and, and being genuinely interested and showing them that you're genuinely interested. And another really important part is is it uncovering the goals that are important to them and meaningful to them and their expectations and their concerns and being genuinely uh uh, like, um, respectful or like, you know, if they're concerned about their, oh, all right. Yeah. Let's, let's bookmark that. But I think, yeah, the, 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 I still, I agree with you, the spirit of it, I like, because I think it is aligned with current best practice of person-centered care, but in terms of its efficacy as a behavior change technique, there's, it doesn't have good evidence at this point. So for exercise. Almost similar to the glute strengthening for patellofemoral pain. It's, there's no direct causal link, but it's just very helpful. So same in a way you can use MI for that, the listening skills, seeing right. how you can create that collaboration 
and that spirit of collaboration in partnership with someone based on their why rather than my selfish goals and my reasons for them to get better. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm not. I don't really consider myself an expert on MI, but it seems to me that I'll, there are kind of the, the, there are some component, two different components of it. And part of the one of the components is the developing of the therapeutic alliance and the evoking of the client's reasons and motivations. And the other part is where you're trying to influence those reasons and motivations by strategic reflections and summaries and you know and questions and things that are directed towards eliciting certain language from the client. And so I, I don't use any of that anymore, but I think all of the stuff around building therapeutic alliance and listening and evoking the client's own goals and reasons and motivations or whatever, there's no, when you're not trying to influence anything, you're simply just trying to garner information and build an alliance. I, I see that as still quite valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I, I even sometimes now almost do the opposite to validate someone's like experience, like looking at their um, the, the reasons for them not to do something. It's like, I, I hear you. Like, it's, exercise is bloody hard. Like, it's tough. Jeez. So then they're like, oh, this person actually understands me. So it's almost anti-motivational interviewing now that I think about it. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I like to feel like, I mean, I don't really feel like I have a dog in the race when someone comes to me with, like, whether they should or shouldn't exercise or do anything. I feel like, well, if you want to exercise, I can help you with that, you know, <laughs> but I mean, if you don't want to, like I'm not here to convince you to do it. That's it. Yes. And maybe this leads into like our current approaches and, and paradigms. Um, I think the one step before that and related to it, I don't know about you, I used to like overuse Socratic questioning and leading people into answers in a way. And that's how like, am I felt? It was like the sleazy yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. salesperson am i like what are your reasons for it and why do you want that and and could you imagine yourself with that it's like, could you imagine yourself with your dream car and like all the benefits of this dream car and what would this dream car give you i felt like a car salesman when going through that approach um and i, I definitely it's almost like old school behavior change principles mm. i mean i don't i don't see anything i don't see anything wrong um like ethically with trying to influence someone's behavior. I mean, we all do it all the time. Like you and I are trying to do it to the listeners right now. You know, <laughs> we want all of you listeners to become biopsychosocial practitioners, right? If you're not already. But honestly, I, I think so. I don't, I don't see anything unethical inherently in trying to influence people's behavior when you're doing it, you know, with the intention of benefiting that person and with their permission, you know, I don't see any problem with it at all, but the the evidence just says to me that MI just doesn't work, you know, or not that it doesn't work. There's not evidence that it does work, right? Which after like X number of randomized controlled trials, if we still don't have evidence that it works, well, whatever effect it does have is going to be pretty marginal, right? So, so yeah, it's, I just think it's it's not efficacious. So that's that's why I don't use it anymore. Yeah, yeah, and it's um the the value is that consent, informed consent process, and asking for permission, and involving that person in the decision making. Maybe there's also like overlaps now with what's most recent is shared decision making for for those with pain, and looking at oh that there's no clear evidence that it's better than the traditional methods, but we just like you can use it. It's still preferred in a lot of contexts. Right. 
So, all right. So let's yeah, let's segue, jump on that shared decision making, and segue into this kind of like notion of client centered care, which is uh, you know best practice in all of the current high quality musculoskeletal um, rehab guidelines. And the notion of client centered care says that you should uh, use care that is. Uh, sensitive or responsive to clients, you know, goals, expectations, preferences, um, con- concerns, right? Is there anything, is, does that, your understanding of client-centered yeah. care? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it's a, like a, making it about their their goals and their needs rather than right. the practitioners is generally how I would like uh, have a base basic understanding or definition of it. Right. And so, you know, at a sort of a, out of a, a fairly basic level, like if if you came to me and, you know, because you had been unable to like go for a fun run with your wife last weekend and you were like, okay, damn it, I'm going to do something about my knee pain, right? And you said, I really want to get back to fun running with my wife. And I was like, okay, well, let's do some glute activation and some transverse abdominus retraining. It's like, and you know, if we can get your spinal range of motion to X, Y, and Z, you know, then that'll be, you know, that'll solve your problems. It's like, well, actually those aren't your goals because you don't really give a shit about any of those things. What you want is to go for a fun run with your wife, you know? And so our, our goals should be based around what's important to you, not what I as the practitioner think is important, you know? Now, of course, I should have some input into how we go about achieving those goals, um, but, you know, I shouldn't be the one choosing the goals, you know, sort of like from on high as the practitioner. So that's kind of like at the basic level of, client-centered care or shared decision-making. But um, so what I want to talk about is then, you know, going back to all of these, like the $40,000 of education that you've spent on all of these things, which turn out to be factually untrue, transverse abdominus activation is going to fix your low back pain better than anything else, et cetera, low-cost syndrome, blah, blah, blah. Um, And I'm not sure, I think we've talked about this before, but I, I want to evoke some controversy if we possibly can. Um, cause I'm hoping that we might differ on this, but, um, you know, do you think there's a good case? So just say if a client came in and they said, you said, why are you here? And they said, Dan, just, I'm really worried about my back. It's been really sore. And you said, okay, what do you think's going on? And they said, like, I know it's my transverse abdominis. Like that is just, I know this with the depths of my soul, you know, and I'm super attached to this belief that. I, I just need to fix my transverse abdominis. Help me, Obi Wan Kenobi. Can you help me fix my transverse abdominis? <laughs> right? Do you think there's a there's an argument there for helping that person quote fix their transverse abdominis? End quote. It's 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 funny. It's um. <laughs> so the the first things in this situation, like um, would be the the context. So would this be in in our scenario uh, initial consult? So I've I've had people, for instance, come in who used to see me. And they're like, hey, you were the person that, you know, fixed my shoulder up with like rotator cuff stuff. So you must know everything about hip stuff, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. And they might be expecting more of the similar specific mobility drills, mm-hmm. but they're also open to a different shift. No, so no, we, we no, say this, fresh off the street. No, this person's got a firmly held belief. Yep. And I guess I'm, I'm, I'm piggybacking on what you said before about you used to think that you people need to change their beliefs. And now you don't think that anymore. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm going, okay, if we sort of extrapolate that to the extreme, would you be happy to participate in them having incorrect beliefs <laughs> if you felt that might be beneficial for them in terms of their actual goals, which is getting back to doing whatever it is that they want to get back to doing? Yeah, yeah. That's a great one. There was um, 
it reminds me of the if if someone is riding a horse and they believe that it's a unicorn, are they still riding a horse? <laughs> so I think this was from one of Greg Lehman's courses from from memory, but it's like I, I'm I'm open to it working for different reasons. Absolutely, I think if if there came a point where someone was asking me why I thought things were working, then it would be a different approach and conversation. But, if, uh-huh. but most people don't like uh-huh. don't care about the intricacies. Uh-huh. They're just like, uh-huh. I want to get help. I want to feel better. I want to move better. I want to get back to my activities, get back to my group classes, get back yeah. into my life. Sweet. Let's get you there. Yeah. I, I've got a I like I, I've got an actual real life example of this, where this was a guy that came to see me when I was in my um, mammal phase. I was in my pain science will solve all the world's problems, including world peace, you know, phase. And this was a poor guy. He had terrible chronic pain, and he'd been mismanaged and a decade of like, I think just chronic. Uh, you know, widespread myofascial pain. And, you know, he was describing it as tendonitis and bursitis and this, that itis. But, you know, it was like his tendonitis would move from his shoulder to his hip to his, you know. So, you know, his pain was, it was definitely central nervous system involvement. And, but, you know, so I was like, oh, I'm just going to pain science this pain out of you. You know, like <laughs> I'm just going to motivational interview you and Socratic question you and you'll just be like, oh, my goodness, I'm cured. I'm healed, you know. <laughs> um, and I actually did get a reasonable result with him in the end. But, you know, who knows? I haven't seen him for a couple of years. It might have come back or whatever. But, um, but he was like he was obsessed with his tendonitis in his shoulder right? That would come and go, right? And so like, if you know anything about tendonitis, you know that it doesn't come and go, right? So, so just from the, like the two sentence description that he gave me, I was a hundred percent certain he didn't have tendonitis in his shoulder. Um, but he was like adamant, like that his shoulder had tendonitis and he wanted to give me a magic, he wanted me to give him a stretch for his shoulder to fix his tendonitis. So like, in my head, I'm thinking like, number one, you don't have freaking tendonitis, dude. And number two, if you did, a, there's no stretch that's going to fix tendonitis. <laughs> like that's not how tendonitis works, right? So it's like there's every part of his rationale was incorrect, 100% certainly incorrect, right? And I was, so I resisted giving him this stretch. I was like, why do you think that's going to work? You know, think about, you know, when your pain flares up and what was happening at work that week. And did you have a big, you know, have, remember how that pain flared up just had you, after you had a fight with your wife? And you know, I was pain sciencing, like, you know, I was doing the Jedi mind trick on him and just with all my full powers. And then one day I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, like, would you stop whinging about giving me giving you this stretch? I'm just going to give you the fucking stretch, right? Just to shut you up, right? So I gave him the most like lame ass freaking, you know, <laughs> stretch. And like, he was cured. He came back next week. I said, how's your shoulder been? He's like, it's perfect. Haven't had a lick of pain. <laughs> that stretch is magic. <laughs> oh, my God. He pain science me. He double, you know, he double bluffed me, you know. And it's like all of my cleverness, all of my motivational interviewing and my Lorimer Mosley, you know, explained pain and all of that stuff didn't touch it. But when I gave him the magic stretch that he was craving – there was there was no magic to it whatsoever, except that he believed it was magic. He believed he was riding a unicorn. His it worked. Yeah, it reminds me of the like that the one client you see for a while, and then they see another practitioner, and they do a quick crack stab something, 
And then like, oh, it's done, fixed. And you're like, no, all <laughs> our work over this time. Um, so yeah, I, I feel you, man. There's there's so many things. I think recognizing the non-specific contextual meaning effects and the impact that that has on outcomes has been like liberating and also, oh, just like almost disappointing. Like you'd wish there was a secret source in there somewhere, but, but it's, it's the reality when it comes to an experience, there's so many factors and the, the, the context, the ritual of, you know, that the association that they have with being in that position, what's going through their mind as they're stretching this specific, you know, point. And it's like, Oh yes, this is exactly what I needed. And that's sending the signals to their nervous system that they're safe now. And there's no more threat, you know, all these ways we can explain it. Um, so I guess where I would, if we want some controversy, right? Because it's a mm. podcast, we would, let's go controversy. So this is the trolley I, problem. Would you give the stretch or would you not give the stretch? You know? Yeah. 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 I think there's a few things in here with like, one would be, um, where did they get that idea from and acknowledging that it's not just our responsibility. That's important. I think we tend to put it on ourselves. Like it's, oh shit, if, if I do this, then it's going to be my fault that they're going to have this belief. It's like, you're just one drop in the ocean. There's society and culture at large. They've gotten all these other influences. You're just one person in half an hour and an hour of their week. What's like, that helps to zoom out from it because we can yeah. be quite attached to like, oh, I'm going to cause lifetime of harm if I give them a stretch. It's like, oh, maybe not within that context. I mean, that, that'd be the first kind of, way I would zoom out of the context. How does that sound? Yeah, and if you zoom out till you can see the shape of the Milky Way, it really becomes inconsequential, you know? Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Um, The the other question that I generally ask now, which I have been asking maybe in in this new era, has been, well, if right now, you know, magic wand, you're, you're cured, what would you be doing? And that's the way that I tend to go about it. So it's like, yeah, you're, you, what if you could, you know, ride your unicorn right now? How would your life change? Or what would you be doing differently? I think the the common thing that comes with, like, I need this specific exercise or I need you to, you know, fix up my VMO. It's not firing correctly. It's like, okay, cool. Like, I hear you. Like, your, your VMO is not firing correctly. Like, I, I believe you. I'm not saying, you know, it, your experience is invalid. There might be different reasons for it, but that's beside the point. Like, what what would you want to do if your VMO was firing? Oh, I'd be squatting. Okay, cool. So now we've got a reframe almost of that initial problem. And we're like, oh, what is the actual problem behind the problem that we can talk about? I'm sensing it might be a bit different to, to your stance, Raph. So please give me all the, the controversy. Well, no, I, uh, no, I think we're, you know, we're probably reasonably close on this, but I guess uh, I feel no compunction whatsoever in if, like, if you came to me and said, Raf, you know, I, I really need you to fix my transversus abdominis, right? I mean, I would, I would ask some questions to understand the context of why you thought that was important, okay? And whether you, how attached I, I felt you were to that as being like the cause of your current predicament. Right. And if I felt that you were only kind of lightly attached, you've kind of read that on social media one time, you thought that's the only thing you need to say, like then I'd, I'd certainly in, engage in some other kind of conversation like you just 
suggested. But if you were like, no, dead set, like that's what I need. I'm really, you know, I've been looking for practitioners all over town that can do this for me. Like I'm just, you know, desperate to have this, you know, one thing. I think that's, this is the answer for me, right? And just like this guy with his magic stretch, then I would be like, okay, well, let's test that. You know, I'd, I'd be like, let's, let's, let me take that seriously. Let's, let's check that out. And I would give them some kind of quote test end quote, for their transverse abdominis activation, acknowledging that there's no such freaking thing unless you're using like EMGs. And even then, what is normal, right, is not clear. <laughs> so, so, so there's in, in a clinic, there's no, there's no practical way that I can assess that in any meaningful sense, but I can give them the impression that I'm, you know, I could lie them on their back and I could put a blood pressure cuff under their back and I could pump it up to some number and say, can you keep the dial on the thing? And I could say, can you lift your leg? You know, I, there's some tests you could do that. I go, oh, this, that's cool. You know, that looks like you really know what you're doing. And I go, and then when we do the test, I could go, you know what? Your transverse abdominis is working awesome because I saw you keep that dial on number seven, right? Or on 80 milligrams of mercury or whatever. And it's like, typically if people have struggled with their transverse abdominis, it goes up above 120 and your set on like was flat on 80 the whole time. So actually, I mean, what have we been doing for your transverse abdominis? Like, can you teach me how to use my trans? Like, cause I've been needing some help with mine actually. Could you like give me some lessons? And so I can actually, if you can show them why it's not a problem, I think that's reassuring. Okay. Or if Alternately, just say the needle wobbles all over the place, which again is not actually a measure of their actual transverse abdominis, right? But it's just, it's a, it's a needle going up and down, right? Or just say, I don't know, you ask them to lift their leg. Can you keep your hips still and lift your leg? And just say they can't, right? That's not a measure of anything apart from motor skill, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but you can say, huh, you know what? Your core control could use a bit of improvement. And I reckon that's really going to help your back pain. So let's give you some exercises to help you improve. Now, I didn't say your transverse timing is wrong. Okay. And I didn't say your core is unstable, right? I chose my words very carefully. I said your core control could use a little improvement. Okay. Core control, not stability. And I think that'll really help your back pain. And so then we can just do some exercises like, can you keep your hips still and lift your leg up? And I'll teach you how to do that, which is just a motor control construct, right? You're just teaching someone a movement skill of keeping the hips still and moving the leg, which you can learn by just practicing it. And they will get better at it. And because it is movement, and we know that movement does help back pain, it's going to have non-specific effects, right? It's going to reduce systemic inflammation, release endorphins, improve self-efficacy, all that stuff. And because they specifically expect that exercise to work, it will probably have a greater effect than some other random exercise that I would give them. What are your thoughts? Yeah, there's touching on some themes there of like rolling with their understanding and validating it and addressing their concern. And I, I definitely am on the side of like assessing it and testing it. If someone says, hey, my... XYZ muscle is weak. Let's let's see it. Let's take a look. Let's do some strength test. And I I still do the manual muscle testing with the grimace in my face and like push. Oh whoa, not that hard. <laughs> Shit, man. Not across the room. Give me a tell me. Give me a bit of time to prepare for this. Damn. Like like you know exaggerating how strong that XYZ muscle is. You you and I got the same technique, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It's all in the face. Um and that to show them and to prove to them that, you know, maybe they're actually strong and they don't need it as much as they actually need it. Mm. Where the, the nuances lie is 
as much as we can control this, what might they take home with them? What might they take away as the the cause? Or even if they were to have that quick fix, what would they attribute that fix to? And this is insane. You could go through, and, and I've had examples of clients where you go through that collaborative approach, you go through the shared decision-making, you tell them explicitly, like, there's so many things going on and, like, it's not just this magic exercise and you didn't like you were strong beforehand you didn't just get stronger in one session did you no no okay and then they come away thinking that it was because of their glutes and the glutes are weak and that's what they tell their friends and family and you're like but what like so i think there's a there is that point where we can't control what they leave sessions with we can only control what we do in sessions so i I like that you reframe the language where maybe there's difference is I'd do the same thing and I'd just tell them, hey, you don't need to do level five LPS, lumbar pelvic stability assessment, but it will help your pain, but you don't need it. I'm happy to help you, right? Yeah, so I would. I think that's where we differ, and it's only I think at the at the tip of the yeah. spear there. You're like I would, placebo. Group, I would like, milk that placebo yeah, to yeah, the yeah. max. I'll be yeah. like, this is going to be <laughs> magic for your pain. This is really going to help you, right? Because I yeah. think we've found the exact thing that's really going to help you. Now, I would be very, very careful with my language. I would never mm. say unstable, you know, any, anything. I would never nocebo them, but I would use a very positive language like, oh, this is really going to help. You know, like this is, yeah, this is the thing. Like this is going to help you. And then I would, you know, try and construct a narrative around that that was empowering, not like, okay, so every time you get pain, that means your core's unstable and you've got to do this exercise. Like it would be like, okay, oh, three weeks later, now we've fixed that. So that's now let's make it automatic so you never have to think about it again and it's just going to work forever for the rest of your life, right? And this is no longer an issue for you, right? And so let's and, – and so I would – you know, so I wouldn't give somebody the message that they have to walk around thinking about their pelvic stability all day or, and you know, like I'll be very, very precise in my choice of words and I would use empowering words. But I, yeah, I don't have any problem in them walking out with, like, I think if they go home and go, it was my glutes, right? I've got no problem with that. If they take home those, that empowering version of it was my glutes and now it's not because we fixed it, right? Yeah. Great. Sure. And and then probably more enticed to keep with your three, four week program and return because you've sold it very well. Whereas in my case, maybe they won't come back because they're like, oh, this says the person says it won't work. So I can see where there's context where your approach would be very helpful for a person. And then other cases where oh, I would be more comfortable having that full disclosure and being like, this is all smoke and mirrors. I don't know. What do you think? is going on. Right. But I'm interested to, to explore, um, you know, because to me that seems incompatible with what you said before about belief change is not necessary for, you know, they can go out believing all the wrong headed things they want. But if, if your goal is to help them achieve their goal, it's like I'm, I fundamentally don't see my, my goal is to educate clients. I think sometimes clients want to be educated, in which case I'm happy to do so. But I think clients come to us because they want to get back to doing the gardening or playing football or going for a run or whatever, right? So our job is to help them get back to doing that thing. Or sometimes they come because they want to get jacked and ripped and shredded and our job is to help them do that. Or like basically whatever their goal is, our job is to help them achieve that goal, right? And so if, but 
99.9% of the time, their goal is not to like learn about pain science, you know, like, <laughs> so, so I don't really necessarily see it as part of my remit to, to educate someone unless they explicitly ask for it, you know? So, yeah, so I'm interested to explore your rationale around that. There's one main paradigm that comes to mind. Uh, it's almost like the unicorn uh, analogy that I use where it's like, can this person believe that it was their TA activation that got them to their goals and also get to their goals? And if the answer to that question is yes, all for it. Like the function of that belief is to help them get to their goal. I think where it might defer in that, and this is where like uh, examples and I love like Peter O'Sullivan having, having patient demos in his course and all the courses where there's actually live patient demos and shout out plug to our own course where you can see that interaction unfold and you can see the nuances where, you know, all these questions that we ask, the person will be like, what do you mean? Or the person can be like, oh yeah, actually, if I had, you know, my core activated, I would be squatting. Whoa, that changes the entire question now. And what if, what if you knew that you were safe right now and, and you could squat, what would you do? Or what, what would it take for you to feel safe enough to squat? So now we've kind of almost changed that paradigm from the problem is TA activation to now their goal activity if they had TA activation. So there's like nuances where I can see in the first case, if they're like, nah, I want my TA activation. Cool. Let's do TA activation. What do you think is going on? I would be like reflecting back on their experience and seeing what, what they think is going on and then be like, yeah, cool. Awesome. I'm, I'm happy with any beliefs. They're just beliefs. They're not behaviors. You can have any belief as long as it's, you know, you're not going to actually um, do something very harmful right here, right now. And it might lead to a behavior, but no, you can have all the thoughts, all the stories, all the narratives and get back to your goals. That's fine. Happy with that. And yeah. So, so behavior is where I'd say the main part is what's the behavior change. Okay. So I think maybe we're in agreement, but so, you know, if someone, if someone has that same conversation, that conversation that you mentioned, okay, so I want to get my TA working again. And then the question is like, well, what would you do if you could get your TA working? You know, I'd be squatting or I'd be running or I'd be whatever. It's like, okay, well, so your, your question there would be like, okay, well, what if you knew you were safe now and you could just squat, right? What if we could just get you squatting right now? You know, and I think that's a wonderful question. And I guess my question would be very slightly different. It would be like, great, let's get you squatting, right? Of course. And I would always, you know, one of the, the fundamental things that we do is ask people what their actual goal is, like what prompted you to come in to see me today? What would you get back to if you could? What would the one be the one thing you'd like to do if that you can't do right now because of this pain or whatever? Like always asking about their functional goal that they want to get back to. And that thing becomes the centerpiece of their rehab, right? So if you want to get back to squatting, guess what your rehab is? Squatting, right? Some version of squatting that you can currently tolerate. And so yes, absolutely. We would our I think our 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 treatment and our sessions would look very, very, very similar. But I think my treatment for that person would also involve probably some transverse abdominus exercises purely for the additional placebo effect. Right, purely for the additional, like I'm just going to take that extra ten percent of pain tolerance and whatever, 
just because of the, the magic pixie dust that is generated when they think they're doing the transverse abdominis activation. <laughs> so the function of the TA activations are for the magic pixie dust extra non-specific meaning effects. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I would give the, I would send them home probably, you know, and this would be again, like somebody who had a reasonably firmly held belief, not somebody who just like said a few words that they weren't attached to. Someone who had a firmly held belief that I genuinely thought they had an expectation that that particular treatment would help them, you know, is the solution for them. And I would just, yeah, so I would like, I would try and surf that wave and I'd send them home with a transversus abdominis exercise and some squats, you know, that would be their, that would be the treatment. And, you know, and we would also look at psychosocial factors like sleep and stress and all of those things, uh, of course. <laughs> but, yeah, that I, I would send them home with like one or two or three exercises and probably TA activation and squats would be the main ones. And it seems like where I would defer would be re reflecting the function of that belief, the meaning of that belief, and then uh, maybe – seeing like is is this an avoidance strategy are they avoiding squats because they think their core needs to be strengthened first that might be a different context to them oh i know i just want to like work my core and just get strong and then squat like I, i'm not worried about squatting oh okay different context so i, mm -hmm. I guess where my um visceral feelings showing up right now of like oh placebo no no don't add the pixie dust raf no uh comes up is like if if there's a like they're avoiding squats because of the ta stuff i could just let's let's assess your ta man that's or or you know like let's do an, a strength test and see oh what oh, you're pretty strong already <laughs> and that's that's where i guess are approaching that specific one scenario, like the one the one thing that we're disagreeing with, Raph, out of all this, it sounds very similar, but it's just slightly different. Maybe I just don't have the pixie dust, like, magician kind of <laughs> context around me with, with my wand, getting it out and be like, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I guess I just see it like um... – I don't see it as an either or. Like, I would definitely get that person squatting, right? And I, I don't think people, I don't think most people, I mean, this was my experience and I, I don't know. Can we ever truly know anyone else's mind apart? Can we even know ourselves? I don't know we're getting too philosophical already, but like, I think, I don't think people have thought it through, right? I think when people think they need to strengthen their TA and they want to get back to squatting, they haven't thought it through logically, like, oh, you know, explain to me the biomechanics of why you need to strengthen your TA before you can, like, they don't know that, you know, they don't think, they just think, they just got some kind of vague thought, like, oh, I need to strengthen my TA because of neutral spine or something, right? They, they don't know what the fuck they're thinking, but they've got just got this notion that's sort of ill-formed and nebulous in their mind, but they're, they're quite attached to it sometimes. And, and so I don't think they think they think it through it logically enough. So you can go, okay, well, let's work on your TA and get your squatting right now. I don't think they would necessarily think that, oh, well, hold on, shouldn't we strengthen my TA first before we, you know, I think a lot of people would just be like, oh, okay, great. You know, <laughs> let's do that then. <laughs> um, yeah, two for the price of one, like covering all bases. And like 
there's no harm in adding extra movement and exercise. I can see that. So yeah, I, the the one thing you know what, what we're missing, Raf. The one thing, Multiples. the other person. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Just the one magic muscle back to the dinosaur era. Just reverse time. Well, it's, it all comes full circle. It's going to come full circle, Dan. Yeah, that's right. You gotta like you gotta restart it, because um, there is a person here with their own ideas and their own thought process, and respecting that. Because yeah, if the person's willingness is only to do squats, if there is TA activation, sweet, cool. If the person, I can see an instance where they're already doing TA activation stuff. Ooh, let's take a look at that. Let's see if we can improve it. Let's make it more challenging. If the person comes in asking for TA activation and they don't know what the hell that is, are they open to not having to do it? Or do they enjoy doing it? See, it's like we'd have a person here in this interaction and I reckon we would end up doing very, very similar things based on that person's responses to these questions. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm a, I'm with you, Dan. Look, I think we could probably w- quite comfortably work alongside one another. Um, however, I am going to. Uh, I think it's just about finishing time, but I do want to not necessarily have the parting shot because I want to give you a chance to respond to this. But um, I want to throw at you uh, Miller et al. 2021 attempting to separate placebo effects from exercising chronic pain: a systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, conclusions: quote. There is very low quality evidence that exercise training is not more effective than non-exercise placebo treatments in chronic pain. It's all non-specific, so it doesn't matter. Hmm. I think that where where I would be looking at is in terms of how that influences their behaviour, in particular the next time they come in with pain. I, I've had patients come in doing their 10-minute warm-up mobility drills for the rest of their life, and it's fine. It works for them. And I always reflect back, oh, like what if I told them five-minute drill or like a one-minute drill? But that's my selfish you mind. You could have added years like, to their life. I know, right? Yeah, that's really humbling, that, that kind of research, that it, there's so many non-specific. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think like I'm totally with you on the 10-minute the warm-up. I mean, my warm-up for doing like, barbell back squats is precisely zero like i just back squat like that's the that's the warm-up um uh so i'm totally with you on on the 10 minute warm-up being a complete waste of 10 minutes um however uh, and and so you know i mean but i've been there i've done the whole kelly star at banded freaking distractions and all of the <laughs> rolling on pvc piping and all of the things and i think if if a client came to me and they were doing a 10 minute you know, myofascial release activation routine warm up before their strength session. I would say to them, Hey, like, why are you doing that warm up? Because that is genuine. I mean, I wouldn't say to them this, but I would think like that is genuinely a waste of time. And if you have a finite amount of time and you have strength goals, you're wasting a significant portion of that time doing something that's utterly useless. You could be doing like three extra sets of squats in the time that you did a warm up, right? You could be tripling your gains, you know. <laughs> you're just wasting, you're literally wasting time, right? So I would have that conversation with them. I'll do it in a much gentler and more respectful, you know, an empathic way than I just said it to you now. <laughs> but um, 
But I would definitely challenge them on that. And I think that is a, but that is a specific thing. Someone's coming to you for a specific goal around, and, and you're not trying to like solve pain for them in that situation. It's just like, well, I want to get stronger, right? Or I want to get more bigger quads or whatever. Like they, they, they've got a specific goal. I'd be like, well, dude, if you want to, if you want to get this goal and you've got one hour a week to spend on it, don't spend 10 minutes of that hour doing fucking foam rolling, right? Like <laughs> spend it squatting. So yes, yeah, so I, I, I totally think that in that situation, it is our, uh, obligation uh, where well, I think we've got a duty of care to share that evidence-based information with somebody and not send them out doing a banded fucking distraction for 10 minutes before they can squat for the rest of their life. Cause you're literally taking years from their life, wasting doing that warm up, Right. But I think, I think that's not the same thing as giving someone some spurious transversus abdominis activation exercises for three weeks to give this equivalent of their magic stretch that physiologically does nothing, but through some non-specific pathway pathways might significantly reduce their symptoms. Yep. Yep. And then the added thing after that magic trick is I'd be like, that was, I, I didn't actually activate anything. I, don't pull the curtain away. <laughs> don't show me the Wizard of Oz. It's just some kind of old balding guy with a pot yeah. belly. Yeah, yeah. No, that's it. <laughs> ah, yeah. I, th- I think, yeah, you, you touched on it. Duty of care first and respecting that person's autonomy and choice as well is very important. And doing things that ideally cause as little harm as possible and is all for their benefit, not for our benefit. If we're having those principles... And then through that informed consent process being in, in my mind as honest as possible and where this defers is like, oh, I don't know if that's the same, but maybe that's right now my practitioner, my own beliefs talking and it's like, oh, that's wrong, but that maybe that's just my own discomfort. And in future, once there's more evidence to, to show this and I have time to reflect on it, We'll come back for part two and I'll be like, I use all the pixie dust. I have like all well, the what, activation bands in this in this cupboard right here. You just don't know them. Well, what if I told you that it's all pixie dust? That's it. <laughs> We're just a blip in the ocean, man. Yeah. Uh, Dan, this has been fun. Thanks for coming on. Mate, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, where can people uh, where can people learn more from you? Absolutely. So check out the Knowledge Exchange on Instagram and Facebook. And for my stuff, check out Arbilla Exercise Physiology for some dance moves as well included. And that'll be linked in the show notes. Amazing. See ya. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. 
this program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.